Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In 1930, Dr. Werner Young was called to the Liberian village home of a teenage girl. What he saw when he stepped inside the home haunted him for the rest of his life. He wrote, quote, There on a mat in a house, I found the horribly mutilated body of a 15-year-old girl. The neck was torn to ribbons by the teeth and claws of the animal. The intestines were torn out, the pelvis shattered, and one thigh was missing. A part of the thigh gnawed to the bone, and a piece of the shin bone lay near the body, end quote. There were leopard paw prints all around the teen's body. It seemed as though the girl had been killed by a large cat. But then Dr. Young looked closer. Mingled in with the paw prints were human footprints. This was no animal attack. The 15-year-old girl was the latest victim of the murderous Leopard Society. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the Leopard Society. For 150 years, members of this secret West African society dressed in leopard skins and brutally murdered at least 81 victims. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Since the late 1800s, the Leopard Society has been responsible for brutal slayings across Liberia, Ghana, Sierra Leone, and other West African nations. 
At its peak, between 1945 and 1947, they ritualistically slaughtered 81 people. Although many members of the Leopard Society were arrested and executed in the late 1940s, police were never able to positively identify any of the cult's top leaders, and authorities in the West African countries plagued by the Leopard Society were never entirely sure how many thousands of people secretly belonged to this elusive cult. The cult stayed active after the 1940s and continued to claim the occasional victim. They're still in existence today and may have been behind a murder that took place just three years ago. Before we dive into the sordid history of the Leopard Society, we should explain just what a secret society is and the psychology behind these groups. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to Adam Parfrey, journalist and author of Ritual America, Secret Brotherhoods and Their Influence on American Society, Secret societies are quite simply groups that require members to pledge allegiance to them. As the name secret society implies, these groups often claim to be privy to secret knowledge. They strive to keep the outside world from uncovering the inner workings of the group or the identities of their members. Secret societies aren't necessarily malicious. Some can even be used for humor or stress relief. For example, in 1993, Robert Curran created the I Hate Barney Secret Society for parents who were sick and tired of the large purple dinosaur. The motto of the I Hate Barney Secret Society is you don't have to tell your kids you belong. Uh, it would be kind of like trashing Santa Claus, I think, if, uh, if uh, kids knew that their parents belonged. If your kids are driving you nuts because of their Barney addictions, that's enough. Uh, all you've got to do is, uh, you know, write to the I Hate Barney Secret Society, uh, send a self-addressed stamped envelope and, and 50 cents, and we'll get you a copy of the I Hate Barney uh, Secret Society newsletter. It's got all kinds of things in there uh, for people who need to deal with their kids' Barney addictions. But while the I Hate Barney Secret Society was good for a laugh, there was nothing humorous about the Leopard Society. The Leopard Society was one of many secret West African societies that formed in the 16th century in response to the rising threat of European colonization and the Atlantic slave trade. As early as the 1500s, French and English merchants and slavers began noticing a proliferation of men who watched them from the jungle. These men wore bodysuits made from leopard skins and masks made from the leopard's skull and teeth and they wielded weapons crafted from leopard claws. At first, the leopard men were content to watch the European colonists from the shadows. But by the 1870s, members of this secret sect were ready to strike back against the foreign invaders. Attacks by the leopard men began in the 1870s in the rural areas outside Libreville, Gabon. Members of the Leopard Society stalked French colonists down jungle trails and ripped them apart with their leopard claw weapons. The leopard men hoped to convince authorities that the victims had simply fallen prey to real leopards. But as the mutilated bodies continued to pile up in the 1870s, villagers and colonists realized the murders were the work of the Leopard Society. The Leopard Society members weren't just mutilating their victims to fool the authorities. They may have also been operating under a fight-or-flight response. 
According to psychologist Dr. Robert Agnew of Emory University, humans will resort to fight-or-flight mode when they feel threatened. In flight mode, fear causes people to turn to self-preservation or coping mechanisms. In fight mode, fear becomes anger and people become violent. What incited the Leopard Society's fear? Only hundreds of years of seeing their friends and relatives captured and sold into the slave trade. The slave trade made the members of the Leopard Society living in Gabon and Sierra Leone feel threatened and ignited a deep sense of anger and resentment. This fueled their violent fight response to the European slavers. By the turn of the 20th century, North America and most European countries had abolished slavery. However, the French and English colonists remained in the West African countries, and Leopard Society members were furious at the continued European presence. The Leopard Society members wanted the foreign invaders out of their homelands, and they believed it was time to up the stakes. The Gabonese division of the Leopard Society sent out trusted messengers to recruit new members across the coast. Soon, there were branches of the Leopard Society all across West Africa, in Gabon, Ghana, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. The new members came from different regions and tribes, but they were all united against the French and English colonists. As each new member joined, they were inducted via a Borfima ceremony. The Borfima ritual was one of the Leopard Society's darkest practices. To complete this gruesome blood ritual, leopard men killed a colonist, brought the body to a meeting place deep in the jungle, and made an elixir from the boiled blood and organs of the victim. The leopard men believed that by drinking the blood of their murder victims, they absorbed their strength. Once the new members were inducted via the Borofema ritual, they were ordered to defend their home countries against the French and British colonists. The various branches of the Leopard Society rarely came in contact with one another after the initiation ceremony, and the autonomous nature of the smaller sects allowed the organization to survive for over a hundred years. As the Leopard Society attacks grew more violent and frequent in the late 1800s, colonial governments finally urged the English and French settlers living in West Africa to limit their time outside the major towns. The colonists became terrified of leaving their homes and avoided interacting with villagers. With the colonists now isolated, most villagers assumed that the Leopard Society had served its purpose. They hoped the group would disband. The Leopard Society did go quiet for several years, between the late 1890s and 1900. The killing stopped, and no one saw the leopard men patrolling at night. Some West African locals speculated that the Leopard Society members were actually supernatural beings, and they had simply returned to their own realm after dealing with the European colonists. Unfortunately, this was not the case. In 1900, Frederick Hodgson, the British colonial governor in Ghana, greatly angered and humiliated the Asante tribe when he demanded the chief's golden stool. The gilded piece of furniture was a crucial religious and cultural symbol for the Asante. The stool was a symbolic resting place for the tribe's collective soul. When Hodgson ignored the wishes of the tribe and stole the stool in 1900, the Asante were outraged. A local tribeswoman, Ya Asante Wa, led Asante villagers on an attack against a British fort. The uprising failed, but the Asante's hatred for the English only grew. 
Not long after the failed assault of the fort in 1900, the Leopard Society division in Ghana resurfaced. Ghana and Leopard Society members began killing British colonists in retaliation for the theft. The Leopard Society's re-emergence in Ghana reignited the cult across the entire West African region. But now, not all factions were killing colonists as part of a rebellion against their respective colonial governments. Since there were no longer any European slavers left to hunt, some members of the Leopard Society selected victims within their own villages. People in Sierra Leone describe stories from their elders involving the mysterious disappearances of neighbors. According to the elders' stories, it wasn't safe to leave home at night after the return of the Leopard Society in the early 1900s. If a villager made a journey to a neighboring town, she needed to stay on a public road and ensure she was home before dark. But even this wasn't enough to keep the villagers safe. A man from McKenney, Sierra Leone, revealed that his great-uncle's wife was abducted by the Leopard Society on her way back from the market one evening in 1912. The Temney tribal authorities went searching for her, and they found her mangled body deep in the jungle. Leopard men had clawed her open, drained her blood, and removed her organs. Officials realized that Leopard Society members had murdered the young woman as part of a Borfema ritual. Another Sierra Leonean from outside Port Loco recalled the story of how her grandmother's cousin survived an attack by the Leopard Men in 1912. One evening in 1912, the young man left home to fetch water from the well outside his village. On the way back, he decided to take a shortcut home through the jungle. This was a terrible mistake. He made it halfway back to the village before he was pounced on by two leopard men. One man held him down while the other swiped at him with a glove made of leopard skin and claws. The weapon cut the young man deeply across his abdomen and face, but he managed to break free from the leopard man's grip. He abandoned his water bucket and sprinted back to the safety of the village. The young man was one of the lucky few to survive an ambush by the Leopard Society. But he never learned the identity of his attackers, since their faces were hidden behind their leopard masks. Any of his seemingly friendly neighbors might have been the ones who tried to kill him. It may seem strange that the Leopard Society would go from defending their fellow villagers from European colonists to attacking and murdering them, but we need to remember that the members of the Leopard Society had been one of the most feared and powerful secret societies in West Africa since the 1870s. Over time, the influence they wielded went to their heads, literally. According to a study conducted by Sukhvinder Obi and Jeremy Hogevain of Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario, Canada, those who are given more power and influence over their situations tend to show less activity in the empathy centers of the brain over time. After decades of successfully getting away with murder, the Leopard Society members viewed everyone else as beneath them. By 1912, if you weren't a member of the group, you were a potential victim. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. 
Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, our story continues. In the early 1900s, Leopard Society members were no longer satisfied with killing colonists. They were also murdering their own fellow villagers. By 1912, members of the Leopard Society were choosing their victims with a specific end goal in mind. Whatever issues members faced, the Leopard Society would carefully select a sacrificial villager whose blood would solve the problem. If a member's crops failed, the group targeted the son of a prominent local farmer as a sacrifice. If a member got sick, the group might go after a well-known medicine man. Also around 1912, the Leopard Society factions across the West African coast developed a new system for their ritual sacrifices. In the 1800s, they had no permanent shrines. But in the early 1900s, they began building huge stone shrines deep in the jungle. These shrines acted as the sacrificial altars, a large effigy of a leopard man made from the bones of Borfima victims, either rested upon the altar or hung from the trees above the stone. Leopard men slaughtered their victims on these altars, staining the grass around the shrines dark red. By 1912, the Leopard Society had also introduced the concept of a Batiyeli. Instead of hunting as a group, the Leopard Society selected a member to act as the Batiyeli, or sacrificial leader. This member dressed up in the traditional leopard armor and hunted the pre-selected victim alone. He was responsible for kidnapping the victim, bringing them back to the shrine, conducting the murder, and preparing the Borfima for the other members. This new killing system emboldened the Leopard Society members. In 1914, the West African region saw the highest number of attacks to date. We don't know the Leopard Society's exact victim tally from 1914, but most experts estimate that the cult murdered hundreds of people in Sierra Leone, Gabon, and Liberia alone. At this point, villagers no longer wanted to live in fear of the elusive cult. Village lawmen tried to partner with the Western colonists to find and prosecute anyone associated with the murderous society, but it proved more difficult than they imagined. Membership in the Leopard Society was anonymous and highly secret, and no one knew for sure who was involved with the cult. But that didn't stop people from accusing lifelong friends and family members of involvement with the Leopard Society. It turned into a witch hunt. It may seem horrific that West African villagers would be willing to accuse their own loved ones of being leopard men, especially if an accusation was as good as a death sentence. But these accusations can be better understood by looking at the ash experiment. 
1951, Solomon Ash gathered different groups of eight young men in a room and asked them to compare three lines of varying sizes with a single line on a separate sheet. He instructed the men to identify which of the three different lines was the same size as the line on the other sheet of paper. Of the eight participants per room, seven were instructed to choose the obviously incorrect answer. The eighth participant, unaware that the others were told to answer wrongly, then gave his answer last. 75% of the time, the eighth participant gave the same incorrect answer as the others. The eighth participants later explained that they knew they were giving the incorrect answer, but they did not want to be ridiculed by the others or stand out by having a different answer. In other words, the eighth participant fell victim to a phenomenon known as groupthink. Groupthink occurs when members of a similar background make faulty decisions that negatively affect others in the group in order to maintain conformity. In the end, groupthink led villagers to make accusations against neighbors, friends, and relatives that they may have believed were truly innocent because they didn't want to stand out or get accused of being leopard men themselves. But these witch hunts weren't enough to stop the Leopard Society's murders. By 1914, village and colonial governments joined together to combat the Leopard Society. A woman from Sierra Leone shared her grandfather's memories of that frightening time period with us. In 1914, her grandfather was a young boy living in a small village just outside Bo, Sierra Leone. He remembers official signs announcing that all secret societies had been banned, and any group caught meeting secretly in the jungle would be subject to arrest. The young Sierra Leonean boy was afraid to walk the roads alone because he lived in fear of being the next victim. It made traveling to town for supplies and coming home from the nearby school terrifying experiences. In 1914, the kind, quiet cassava farmer living next door to the young boy went out of town. When he came back, he was accused of being a leopard man simply because he had left the village. Despite his protestations of innocence, the cassava farmer was swiftly sentenced to death and hanged. The young boy later recalled the growing sense of frustration from locals when the killings continued. He said the only way villagers felt safe was by having more suspected leopard men taken away and executed. And we can see here why villagers were so motivated to accuse lifelong friends and family members of being leopard men. Executions were the only thing that even temporarily quelled their fear of the Leopard Society. The four-year period from 1914 to 1918, during which villagers hunted down and executed suspected members of the Leopard Society, was a tumultuous time in West Africa's history. The trust and deep sense of community that had once been a major part of the region's culture waned thanks to the Leopard Men's murders and the villagers' fear. But when it seemed like there was no stopping the Leopard Society's reign of terror in West Africa, the killings halted across the entire region in 1918. Suddenly, there were no more sightings of leopard men in the jungle or around the towns. It was as if the entire group had vanished into thin air. Unfortunately, the Leopard Society was still active, and a Liberian branch of the group resurfaced just 12 years later. The Leopard Society escalated their violent tactics in Liberia in 1930. Instead of attacking their victims in the jungle, members began murdering people in their homes. One of the first of these new vicious attacks was recorded in 1930 by Werner Young, 
a missionary doctor stationed in Liberia. After discovering a teenage victim of a Borfema ritual in her home, Dr. Young wrote in his journal about finding the 15-year-old girl slashed open and mutilated. An animal had chewed through the flesh on her thigh, right down to the bone. Dr. Young initially believed a leopard was responsible for the girl's death after finding paw prints by her body. It wasn't until he discovered human footprints alongside the paw prints that he realized a cannibalistic leopard man had murdered the teenage girl. Following Dr. Young's publicized documentation of the 15-year-old Liberian girl's murder in 1930, the Leopard Society's killing patterns became even more unpredictable. Sometimes they would kill two people in a week. Other times, they went quiet for weeks. No one knew when the next attack was coming or who the target might be. Locals speculated the Leopard Society's erratic behavior was due to the lack of colonial law enforcement in the area at the time. Many of the English and French troops that acted as the police force in West African colonies were recalled to Europe in the early 1930s. These European soldiers remained in Europe throughout the 1930s and into the 1940s to provide support during World War II leaving only a few less experienced officers behind to patrol the West African colonies. But after World War II ended, the European soldiers returned to West Africa to police the colonies. The Leopard Society saw the return of these war-hardened, better-trained officers in 1945 as a direct threat. The Leopard Society wanted to let the returned officers know who was in charge. The following year, in 1946, the Leopard Society murdered 46 people in an effort to intimidate local law enforcement. The Leopard Society was also increasing their violence due to their long-held grudge against the European colonists. The social psychology department at the University of Minnesota splits aggression into two types, impulsive and cognitive. Impulsive aggression occurs with very little premeditation and is inspired by sudden negative emotions. But cognitive aggression is fueled by old grievances and can result in greater violence. In the case of the Leopard Society, their long-standing feud with the European colonists drove the group to execute more vicious attacks than ever before. In 1947, the Leopard Society began killing even more frequently. Within seven months, they had killed 43 villagers and colonists. There was no clear pattern of the type of people they targeted. Their victims were young and old, male and female, European colonists, and West African villagers. Authorities who investigated the crime scenes rarely identified the victims, since most of the bodies were too mangled for anyone to recognize. The only victims identified immediately were the ones discovered in their homes. By 1947, colonial officials in West Africa were struggling to deal with the murders. One official wrote, quote, the stage has now been reached when every single male adult is a potential leopard murderer. Real leopards prowl through the thick six-foot-high bush, but man leopards, with a blind belief in their primitive cult, are now taking human lives at the rate of more than one a week in this blood-stained patch of Africa." End quote. These reports sparked international interest in the Leopard Society's murders, and newspapers in England and France began publishing articles about the cult. On June 30, 1947, journalist Graham Stanford wrote the following for the Daily Mail while he was stationed in Liberia. 
quote, We are fighting nothing so tangible as an organization, but rather an attitude of mind. Purely preventive measures haven't succeeded. They have not disturbed the leopard men. Patrols have been strengthened, curfew imposed, wholesale arrests have been made, and some forms of juju have been banned. But the leopard men still lurk in the bush, and the cult has grown so strong that the police believe the word of no man. Every man in Leopardland is suspect. End quote. Stories of the vicious leopard men spread quickly around Europe in 1947. Europeans were fascinated by the idea of a group of murderers who dressed as leopards. The Leopard Society even found its way into Western pop culture. The popular Tarzan comic featured an issue in which the hero faced down the Leopard Society. Even the authors of the children's series The Adventures of Tintin wrote the Leopard Society into one of Tintin's tales. But while the Leopard Society was an abstract fascination to people in Europe, it was a very real, very dangerous problem to West African colonists and villagers. This was particularly true for those living in the Opobo region of Nigeria. Most of the 89 murders between 1946 and 1947 took place in Nigeria and Sierra Leone, and the Nigerian government was fed up. The Nigerian colonial government knew that most of the Leopard Society attacks happened at night, so they imposed a non-negotiable 4 p.m. curfew for all colonists. The only people allowed on the roads or in the jungle after 4 were trained patrolmen. The colonial officials hoped that if there were no civilians outside after curfew for the Leopard Society to victimize, the Nigerian branch of the cult would dissipate or move to another region. Unfortunately, they were wrong. Instead of attacking people on the road, the Leopard Society just escalated their attacks on people in their homes. British colonial officer Terry Wilson wanted nothing more than to end the killing. Wilson was stationed in Opobo, Nigeria, near the end of 1947. During his six months of service, Wilson came across more Borfima victims and murder scenes than almost any other officer. Wilson saw it as a personal affront that the people he was supposed to be protecting continued to live in fear of the Leopard Society. Wilson had come to think of Opobo as his second home, and he developed a close relationship with many of the locals. After months of watching the Leopard Society murder villagers and colonists in 1947, Wilson decided to take matters into his own hands. After completing his nightly patrols, Wilson hid in the jungle and lay in wait for the Leopard Men. He hoped he could capture a Leopard Society member and question them. He persisted for months, but he never saw a single member of the Leopard Society. Wilson suspected that the cult members knew he was looking for them, and they were lying low on purpose. But one night in 1947, his persistence paid off. As Wilson hid in the jungle, a Leopard Society member appeared, covered in blood. He had clearly just murdered a new victim. Wilson watched as the Leopard Man removed his costume and recognized the man as Nagogo, an Opobo chief, Wilson tracked the chief to his house in the village before returning to the colonial township to gather backup. Later that evening, Wilson and several other police officers raided Nagogo's house and discovered his leopard skin and mask. During their raid, they also received a tip to dig around Nagogo's house, and they found the remains of 13 Borfima victims. 
Wilson arrested Nagogo and threw the older man into prison to await trial. He hoped that the chief's arrest would give the local villagers the confidence to come forward and name other Leopard Society members. But the villagers were still too frightened. And for good reason. The Leopard Society murdered Nagogo's wife and teenage daughter the week that he was arrested as a message to both Nagogo and the community. If Nagogo or anyone else revealed the identities of other Leopard Society members, then their families would be killed. Wilson hoped that Nagogo might give up the members' names anyway. After all, the Leopard Society had already murdered Nagogo's family. He had nothing more to lose and a reason to want revenge. Wilson took Nagogo to see his wife's and daughter's bodies, assuming that this would inspire Nagogo to turn on the Leopard Society. Unfortunately, Wilson's plan backfired. Nagogo suffered a fatal heart attack upon seeing his wife's and daughter's mutilated remains. With Nagogo dead, Wilson was fresh out of Leeds. He needed to find another way to stop the murderous Leopard Society. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now, let's continue the story. After Leopard Society member Nagogo's unfortunate death in 1947, Officer Terry Wilson wrote to the English government and to other British colonial governments around West Africa to ask for reinforcements against the Leopard Society. There were plenty of able-bodied men in the local Nigerian villages who could have volunteered for a position in Wilson's patrol. But Wilson was concerned that some of these men might be spies for the Leopard Society. He wanted men he could trust without hesitation. By the end of 1947, Wilson had gathered together a task force of over 200 British men to patrol the roads, villages, colonial towns, and jungle paths every night after curfew. But the patrolmen struggled to track down members of the Leopard Society, and they had trouble coping with the distant sounds of the victims' screams emanating from somewhere deep in the jungle. Many of Wilson's officers were World War II veterans, and they confided to him that these screams were causing them to have battlefield flashbacks. Quite a few of these men likely suffered from PTSD. Many with PTSD struggle to deal with triggers, which can be sounds, smells, or locations that remind them of their trauma. The American Psychiatric Association defined triggers as subsequent reminders of an event that contributes to a change in a person's thinking, emotion, or behavior. The untreated PTSD of many of the patrolmen made it hard for them to protect the villagers. 
Sometimes, a villager's scream would trigger a patrolman's flashback. They'd find themselves briefly incapacitated, but then, upon getting their bearings, discovered the Leopard Society's new victim had been murdered less than a hundred yards away. With the British police officers proving themselves incapable of stopping the murders, the Leopard Society members grew even bolder. One night in 1947, while most of Wilson's men were on patrol, the off-duty men in the compound were awakened by screams from the courtyard. They grabbed their weapons and ran toward the noise, but they were too late. In the courtyard, the officers discovered the body of a teenage girl. A leopard man had tortured and stabbed her multiple times before cutting her throat. The officers searched for her killer, but the leopard man had already fled into the jungle. It was a reckless move for the Leopard Society member to kill his victim right at police headquarters. But as we've seen in past episodes, cult members and killers who get away with crimes often become reckless because they feel like they're invulnerable. And in 1947, it seemed like the Leopard Society did indeed have the upper hand against the police. They even murdered several police officers who were patrolling the jungle. Sometimes, the Leopard Society took the officers' organs for Borfema rituals. Sometimes, they simply mutilated the men and left them to die. Wilson himself became a target one night in August 1947. He woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of his dog growling fiercely at the foot of his bed. When Wilson glanced out the nearby window to investigate, someone shot a barbed arrow at his head. The four-foot-long arrow sliced past his face and embedded itself in his bedroom wall. Wilson pulled the arrow from his wall and rushed to the police compound. He soon learned he wasn't the only officer that the leopard men attempted to kill that night. Several of his patrols were also ambushed in what appeared to be a coordinated attack by the Leopard Society. The local villagers had long believed that the leopard men had supernatural abilities. But in late 1947, Wilson's officers began to believe in these rumors as well. Nicholas DeFonso of the Rochester Institute of Technology has an explanation for why the officers might have started believing in the supernatural. DeFonso theorizes that people turn to rumors in order to cope with frightening or uncertain situations. Rumors also provide a sense of comfort and clarity in uncertain or embarrassing situations. The officers were humiliated by their inability to stop the Leopard Society's murders. Believing that the Leopard Society members were magical and immortal allowed them to process their feelings of shame and fear. Wilson was frustrated by these rumors of the Leopard Men being immortal. He knew that the folklore would prevent villagers from coming forward with confessions or evidence. He was also aware that the stories were causing his men to lose faith. And the longer the rumors went unchecked, the more difficult Wilson's job became. DeFonso theorizes that rumors persist longer when they're hard to disprove. Wilson needed to capture a Leopard Society member quickly and prove the group's members weren't immortal. The longer he took, the more demoralized his men became as they began to believe the rumors about the Leopard Men. Wilson knew that the Leopard Society relied on its supernatural reputation to maintain its power over the region. So in 1948, Wilson devised a plan to prove that the Leopard Society members were mortal. Wilson spoke to the son of a trusted local woman and asked the boy to pose as bait for the Leopard Men. The boy readily agreed to Wilson's plan. 
At dusk one evening in 1947, Wilson and the boy took a stroll down a rural path outside the village where the leopard men had previously murdered several victims. Wilson's men were hiding at various points along the road, waiting to see if the leopard men attacked. Wilson and the boy walked for nearly an hour before they heard a high-pitched shriek in the jungle. Suddenly, a leopard man sprang from his hiding place and attacked Wilson and the boy with a claw-like knife and a club. Wilson's men sprang into action. One of the young officers moved in on the leopard man with a knife, but the leopard man crushed the officer's skull with his club. Before remaining officers could stop him, the leopard man fled into the darkness. Wilson rushed to the fallen officer, grief-stricken that his plan had gotten one of his men killed. But as he knelt by the young man's body, he noticed a bloody knife in his hand. Wilson's officer had managed to wound the leopard man before he was killed. Now, all Wilson needed to do was send officers to follow the trail of blood and search the local village for a man with a knife wound. While several officers followed the blood trail, the men remaining with Wilson offered to carry the dead officer's body back to the police compound. But then Wilson had another idea. What if the leopard man returned to the scene of the crime to collect the officer's body for a Borfema ritual? Wilson placed the young officer's body in the middle of the road. Then he crouched in the underbrush near the path and waited. At midnight, a figure crawled out of the jungle on all fours and approached the body. At first, Wilson thought the figure might be a real leopard who stumbled upon an easy meal. Then he caught a glimpse of the man-made claws glinting in the moonlight. The leopard man bent over the young officer's corpse to disembowel him. With the man distracted, Wilson crept from his hiding place and sprung at him. The leopard man fought and hissed, but Wilson fought harder. The leopard man broke free of Wilson's grip and tried to pounce on Wilson. Wilson pulled out his gun and shot him in the chest. The leopard man died instantly. Though he was exhausted and battered, Wilson brought the body of the leopard man back to the police compound. Here was proof for both his officers and the local villagers that the members of the Leopard Society were not supernatural beings. After Wilson successfully killed a leopard man in early 1948, many villagers felt emboldened. They came forth in great numbers with eyewitness accounts of Leopard Society attacks. Some villagers even offered strong evidence against neighbors or relatives that they suspected were in the cult. These new witness testimonies allowed Wilson's team to conduct proper investigations and finally make arrests. Unlike the witch hunts of 1914, these 1948 arrests were based on evidence and fact. If a villager suspected his or her neighbor of being a leopard man, Wilson's men searched the suspect's house for leopard society paraphernalia. The officers also dug around the property in search of victims' remains. If evidence was found, the man was arrested and brought to police headquarters for interrogation. The arrested leopard men refused to give up the identities of their fellow members, but Wilson was still able to use these arrests to his advantage. He had learned from his past mistakes with Nagogo that family members of arrested leopard men became the Leopard Society's next targets. Wilson had officers stake out the homes of captured men to seize any other leopard men who tried to execute the arrestee's family members. Several arrests were made using this technique until the Leopard Society caught on and stopped targeting arrested members' families. 
By February of 1948, Wilson and his men arrested 73 leopard men. Forty of those leopard society members were taken to Lagos, the colonial capital of Nigeria, and hanged for their crimes. Wilson made sure that chiefs from all the major local tribes were present at these hangings. He wanted these community leaders to help stop the rumors that the Leopard Society members were immortal. Word traveled from Nigeria in 1948 that dozens of leopard men had been hanged. Villagers across West Africa were comforted by the knowledge that the Leopard Society wasn't a force of black magic. In 1948, colonial police forces across West Africa began using Wilson's methods to execute their own campaigns against Leopard Society sects in their region. Thanks to a joint effort between the colonial governments and the villagers, the police were able to arrest enough leopard men by 1950 to stop the cult's mass killings in West Africa. Most experts believe that leopard society leaders and high-ranking members were caught and executed. This left many sects without direction, explaining why the murders petered off. But the leopard society did not disappear completely. Over the course of the following decades, Police officers in Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Nigeria continued to find occasional Borfema victims. The most recent of these ritual killings occurred just three years ago in the rural city of Ganta, Liberia. On September 22, 2015, 17-year-old Cephas Zbane failed to return home to his family after work. A young neighbor, 17-year-old Jacob Vombo, came to the house asking if Cephas made it home that night and Cephas's father found that question odd. The next morning, September 23, 2015, Cephas was still missing, so his father decided to go to the police station and file a report. He was shocked to encounter Jacob again at the police station. At this point, he suspected that Jacob knew what had happened to his son. Cephas's father quickly told the police about Jacob's visit the previous evening, and an officer detained Jacob for questioning. After three days of interrogation, Jacob confessed that Cephas was dead. He led the police to Cephas's body, which he had hidden in his family's sugarcane field. The medical examiner, Jerry Tua, noted, quote, major organs were missing, along with his eyes, tongue, and ears. It was so terrible to see a young man killed in that manner, end quote. Rumors began to circulate that the teenager was killed by the Leopard Society for a Borfema ritual. But Jacob insisted that he wasn't actually the one who had murdered Cephas. He instead claimed that a powerful government official named Sam Kalie had asked him to bring Cephas to the field. Sam allegedly promised that if Jacob procured a victim for him, then he would pay for Jacob's university tuition. Sam Kalie was the county coordinator for the Ministry of Agriculture in Liberia, and his father-in-law was the chief justice of Liberia's Supreme Court. The Nigerian police hesitated to involve such a powerful figure, but they decided to bring him in for questioning. Sam was summoned to the Ganta police station and brought into a room with Jacob and the investigators. But Sam claimed that he had no idea who Jacob was. Jacob, on the other hand, told investigators that he knew witnesses who could verify that Jacob and Sam knew each other. Jacob claims that he saw Sam write something on a folded piece of paper and leave it on the lead investigator's desk before leaving the station. Shortly after that, Sam was mysteriously dropped as a suspect. Jacob was the only one charged with Cephas's murder. 
And in February 2016, he was sentenced to life in Santa Calais Central Prison. Jacob maintains that Sam and his unnamed secret society butchered Cephas. When Guernica magazine interviewed him, Jacob said, quote, I told the court that I've committed a sin in front of my Heavenly Father. I beg for forgiveness from God for taking Cephas to that area. I'm not saying I don't deserve punishment, but let justice prevail for Sam also. End quote. We don't know for sure if Cephas's murder was organized by the Leopard Society, but the cult still exists in the shadows to this day. The Leopard Society stands as a stark reminder to West Africans that sometimes the powerful really can get away with murder. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Jordan Giddens and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.